Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. When I sat down with Fred Willard in February 2020 inside his home in Southern California, he was noticeably weak. I held his microphone for him throughout our conversation. But his mind and his sense of humor was quite intact, and he was still working. In fact, Fred received a phone call during our interview inviting him to the Modern Family Rap Party. And he talked to me about being ready and willing to drive into Hollywood with only a morning's notice to appear on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Willard was a deadpan king of comedy and an improvisational genius in all sorts of supporting roles in television and movies from the 1960s until his final days. We spoke about all of it over the course of an hour, from how he got involved with the Second City and Ace Trucking Company, to Fernwood Tonight and Real People, hosting Saturday Night Live in 1978, meeting Christopher Guest in his memorable roles in This Is Spinal Tap, For Your Consideration, and of course, Best in Show. He had a funny story about how he scored a role in Everybody Loves Raymond, Willard also talked about what would be his last venture, playing Steve Carell's father in the new Netflix farce, Space Force. Willard died peacefully at home on May 15th, 2020. He was 86. He was the only live-action actor in a Pixar animated movie, WALL-E, perhaps because he always animated every project he worked on. Fred Willard most certainly will be missed, but let him tell you why in his own words. So let's get to it. So, Fred, thank you so much for, for having me in your house. I always love to talk about Chicago and Second City and comedy, and uh, I hope that I sound intelligent in doing it. I was very surprised. I started reading this book on Second City, and about the fifth page, my name was mentioned. I said, oh, great. <laughs> is that is that a good number of pages before you get in there? Yeah. It's about a comment I made about Severn Darden, which was very true. Um they quoted me correctly, mm. which a lot of times they don't do, and they just mentioned me as a Second City alumni. Uh. Now, when you were when you were a kid, did you have any concept of what old age was going to look like or be like? What old age? Yeah, not really. You know, I realize now as a little kid, I had a grandmother, and she had some sisters. They were my aunts. Mm -hmm or my great aunts, and then my mother had brothers and sisters, and I assumed that was life. Everyone was either 75 years old or 40 years old, and I was, you know, 9, 10 years old, and it was always going to be that way. And then I looked back, at, and I saw pictures of my grandmother when she was 19 or 20, and it, that's when I first realized this. Is, I said to my mother, I said, who is this woman? She said, well, that's your grandma. So I realize that people get older and it, life goes on, uh, and it's not doesn't just stay the way you it is when you're born. Right, but the idea thinking about that when you're nine or ten, and then realizing that seventy years later you would still be getting calls to work for Jimmy Kimmel and yeah. oh, 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 yeah. do do a series for Netflix. Yeah, yeah. When you you just assume. Uh, that when you do a job, as a lot of actors say, that'll be the last thing you ever do. And people say, "When are, are you ever think of retiring?" And well, sure, I'm retired now. And then you get a phone call, come in and do something for just one afternoon. I go, okay, I'll be there. Um, I don't have any ambition to do movies and uh, long-term things, and you know, sixteen-hour days. I've done done them. Right. And. Uh, but I, I still do a lot of fun little jobs that I'm asked to do. Voiceover for cartoons. I, I was finally killed off on Modern Family. It was my last episode. I, you know, I was, well, the, the series is ending, too, so it's, I wouldn't... I would, yeah, don't feel too bad about that. Yeah. And um, uh, I had a small part in a new series that's not on yet about Space Force. Right. Is, show. is there any carryover from the 1978 pilot that you I, did for Space Force? I have no idea. I I didn't read. Uh, they didn't give me the whole script. I'm Steve Carell's father. And I've talked to him by phone, and I always have some uh, 
com- stupid complaint and then do a few improv lines with Steve. And so I, I couldn't tell you the plot. I couldn't tell you. And I don't know when it's going to come out. But it was fun to do. And the, you know, the hours are short for me, mm-hmm. which is good. Yeah. Is there when you're doing the spots for Jimmy Kimmel, uh, do you get to improvise at all on that? Not so much. When I used to do something similar to that with the Jay Leno, I had a lot of fun. And the writers would say just before I went out, make Jay laugh. <laughs> So it'd be on cue cards, but I would I would really make a scene out of it. I I I'd talk to some third person off camera, and then then I'd, I might come back and say, "Are we still on the air?" What? Or I'd look to off and say, "I'm talking to Jay Leno, you know, Jay Leno." But with Jimmy Kimmel, it seems a little bit more like, "Let's get out of it." Here's a fir- there's a certain spot in the in the monologue it's, uh, that it comes up, and I I haven't felt although I've done about twenty or twenty five of them. I haven't felt comfortable enough to go off script yet because uh, uh, it's uh, the jokes are very well written. Oh, okay. I, I I get a script. I don't know till the day I do it whether or not I'm going to do the show. And you go and you're given the script, and they're very seldom are, are the rewrites, unless there's uh, they mention someone's name that they say the network wants to change this, but it's never you know we're going to change this line. We're going to change. Then when they do that, you get a feeling, well, this isn't written in stone. So um, I usually feel when I see a script the first time, this is it. And I better darn well know it. And then when they come in and say, now we're going to change this line and change that line. say, oh, they're just writers. They're just people like me. And then if I want to come up with a a couple of times I've said, um, could I say something? Just a line. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So there's no, no, no improvising so far with Jimmy Kimmel. Okay. What was your improv or sketch background like when you did first show up at Second City in Chicago? Uh, none whatsoever. I um, had a partner. I'd worked. Uh, his name was Greco. Our team was called Greco and Willard. We'd been on Ed Sullivan. I always think someone's coming in the door. That's the flag waving. Um, we'd been on Ed Sullivan. Uh, we'd been on The Tonight Show. We'd been, and we'd played Chicago several times. And obviously the producers of Second City uh, had seen us come and been in the audience. So they were casting a new company, and my agent called and said, the people from Second City would love you to come in and audition for their new company. And I said, I can't do that. I, you know. So to make a long story short, I went in, and I auditioned. Robert Klein was one of the other auditioners. And... Um, I didn't know many of the others, but it was a big group at William Morris. And they'd asked two of us to get up and say, okay, you're, you're two guys who just met on the street or something. And for some reason, they, it just hit a tone of something I could jump on. And I did very well. And by the end of the hour or so, they'd say, we have time for one more. And I had my hand up. I'd like to do one more. <laughs> so... um I went to Second City, never improvised. It scared me because I'd seen Second City, and I knew they were very bright and very political and very, um, uh, just very interesting. But I, uh, we started out with some already written Second City sketches, which I loved, and then in the improv part of the show, I, I remember going on stage the very first time. And I, I'm always confused what it was. I think at one time uh, I went on with nothing to do, but it took off, and I, it, I, I jumped in. The next night I had a wonderful joke to start with, and I went, entered the scene with this wonderful joke, got a good laugh, and then nothing else. So that's one of the lessons they, they teach you. Don't rely on a joke or a character unless you're going to really pull it off. And um, that's one interesting thing about... Uh, Second City, and I came in a little after the Paul Sills era with Alan Arkin and all those people where you you were not allowed to joke. You couldn't jump to the ending, and you could do a 10-minute sketch without a laugh. There would be humor there, but um, they frowned on jokes. Right. And definitely frowned on any blue material. That was just not to be done. This was 1960. Five, I think, at the old theater. So, so this was when Lenny Bruce was getting into trouble. Yes, yes. 
Well, my partner and I had played the Gate of Horn, which were a year before Lenny Bruce had been arrested. So that new type of comedy was coming in. And uh, in some of the companies after mine at Second City, they were just dying to get, you know, uh, blue. But our company, they, they stress comedy and character. Weren't they also at the time calling it sick comedy? Sick humor. He's a sick comic. Even I think Bob Newhart was called a, a sick comic because, uh, you know, they, they did a whole type of material that uh, had never been done before. And it's an interesting thing. This has nothing to do with that, but I'm watching Mrs. Maisel. Right. And they, they have Lenny Bruce on. And last night I watched an episode where he did his bit about coming to the Catholic Church. And I didn't find it funny, but I realized that Lenny Bruce had a different intonation. And when I'd first heard that, I remember being in New York and some friends brought out a Lenny Bruce album and says, you got to hear this guy. I had never heard comedy like that. Up until that time, it was the, the comics about my mother-in-law and uh, <laughs> how crowded the city was. And to hear Lenny Bruce talk about the church and the pope and Adolf Hitler making jokes about Hitler... It just opened up a whole thing of comedy. Then came Mort Saul, uh, Bob Newhart, Nichols and May, who were from Second City. Right. Shelley Berman, who was also from the Compass Players. And I think I've, I learned that he had worked with Nichols and May. And he wanted to make a three-person act, but they didn't want to. It was too many, too many people in the act. Um, but it, was, it opened up a whole new page of comedy. And while Chicago had been doing this, uh, at Second City all along. And I don't think there's anyone else doing Second City type of stuff. I, I know there was the uh, the committee in San Francisco. I don't know if they... I think they started after the Compass Players in Second City. I think a little bit later. Yeah. They were very political. Sometimes I would drive up to San Francisco just to see an act at the Hungry Eye and then to see uh, the committee. And then finally, they just got too political, really uh, seriously political. I said, I'm not going to go anymore because I wasn't that political. Uh, it's a good thing that's not, that's not a problem now in 2020. No, no. <laughs> but uh, Chicago, Second City, when I went in, we, we did more. We got away from a lot of the psychological and psychiatry uh, uh, sketches about uh, great authors. And, and you just did sketches. Uh, about Chicago and people and families. And it was a little different. I went in with Robert Klein, David Steinberg, who had been there, Judy Grobart, who had been there before, and she was just lovely, just lovely, wonderful, funny young lady. And uh, a lady named Joan Bassey, who was very British, but it turned out she wasn't from England at all, but she'd studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And and then later, a friend of mine, who, um, Sandra Karen, uh, replaced her. And we're still good friends. She lives here in Hollywood with her, her husband. Very funny. She was English. Okay. She was legit. Still, and still is very English. <laughs> so anyway, that's my take on Second City. And it was, I, well, I was just there one year. And it was just the greatest creative year of my life. Because, I, as I've said, you could walk through the streets and come up with an idea. So you could see something happen. Go in that night in the dressing room and say, I saw something today, the funny thing we have to do as an improv. Bob, you be a policeman. David, you be... And put it up on the stage that night. Um, and we got kind of recognized in Chicago, which you wouldn't so much in New York. You, you, you're, you're lost in New York. Uh so when you watch Mrs. Maisel, having lived and performed in that era, does it does it take you back to that, or do yeah, you? It does. It's it's different than I remember. For instance, she plays at the Village Gate, which is a huge club. The Village Gate it was actually a small little thing. You'd go down some steps, and it was a long, narrow room. And uh, it was one of the the comedy clubs or music clubs in the village. Um. I saw a lot of performers there. Uh, just celebrities would just drop in and sit in the audience. And uh, Willie Nelson played there, and uh, comics would play there. And um, 
I don't remember any profanity. Mrs. Maisel gets, you know, a lot of four-letter words. I think they said, it, it just didn't, had an ender there in this early 60s. And Lenny Bruce, we were watching, he did a routine, and my daughter was watching with me, and she said, was that actually one of Lenny Bruce's routines? I said, yeah, but Lenny Bruce seemed funnier. I mean, the guy is doing a pretty good Lenny Bruce, but Lenny Bruce was very unusual. And um, I was a big fan of his. I, I saw him work a couple of times in person. Uh, now, he was not... He played Chicago, but I don't know where he started. New York. Um, Did he see you perform with Greco? Who, Lenny Bruce? Yeah. I would love to think he did, but I... I I never met him. I met a lot of them. I met, um, you know, I, I've come to know uh, Bob Newhart. I was on his show. I just had dinner with him a couple of months ago with another friend. Uh, I met Mike Nichols a couple of times, and I just, a friend of mine, Peter Boyle's widow, lives in New York, and I was talking to her one day about uh, Elaine May, and she said, oh, I know Elaine. I said, oh, I'd love to meet her. She said, I'll invite you to dinner some night. And when, I said, yeah, yeah. So one night she invited me to dinner, and Elaine May was there. And I would say we had a nice conversation. It was a one-way conversation. I was, where did you, where did, do you remember what theaters you worked in? Oh, well, I don't know, so many things. But I, I was just thrilled to be with her. I, I, I know that feeling right now. <laughs> yeah, she, I thought, she had no idea who I was, I don't think. And her husband, her husband, her boyfriend was, uh, I think, Stanley Donan. I'm not sure. What, what year would this have been? When I met him or her? 2010, 2011. Okay. Um, so a long time had passed since either of you had been at Second City. Oh, oh definitely. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Elaine May wasn't as into talking about Second City as much as I was. <laughs> But I just there's a was a wonderful documentary on about Mike Nichols and uh, they showed scenes from him and Elaine May. I saw them work on television when I first got to New York and they were just spectacular. I think comedy in Chicago was more about people and everyday situations as opposed to New York with my wife and the airplanes and the subways and uh, and the Catskill Mountains. Uh, and the nightclubs, the Bonsoir, a comic to open up for Eartha Kid or something. And California, I'm not sure what the comedy scene was, but later it was for stand-ups trying to get sitcoms. But Chicago, they just, it was to be funny in a zone and just make people laugh. And when I first, I was a fan of Second City before I went there. I'd seen them on Broadway and I liked them so much that one time my partner and I had been working in Las Vegas and we were done and we were going back to New York. I, I stopped in, in Chicago to go to see Second, just to spend a night to see Second City. And I opened up the paper. I saw there was no, no ads for Second City. They didn't advertise. You kind of had to know when the show was. And I, I think I looked it up in the phone book and I had to call to find out what time the shows were on. It was like, you know, if you want to come to see us, we're here. This was the old theater. And I remember talking to, I think, Bernie Sollins. You know, he was the owner. Right. And after one of his shows, I said, Bernie, did you ever think of selling souvenirs? You know, T-shirts. No, we wouldn't do that. No, we don't, we don't want to do that. We just People come and enjoy the coming. And now if you go to Second City, it's you can buy everything. Caps, books, sou and you pull up, and uh, it's discouraging. Sometimes you'll, you'll go across to the theater at showtime, and there's a big tour bus in front. And it's, oh, God, it's a tourist attraction. But they play. They've, they've turned their, their comedy around to, to, to play to the tourists. They don't make it too specific for Chicago. It's not all about Chicago politics, although there, there will be po Chicago po politics in it. And you don't get the joke, but you'll laugh anyway, because you know it's a, been a very bright joke. Um, well, I'm also interested in the, in the fact that once you did come to Los Angeles, in the late 70s, you managed to be at the forefront of two, the early part of two trends in television, 
with Fernwood tonight, you were part of a, a show that spoofed late night talk shows, and then Real People, which is where I first saw you as a young oh, oh. as a young boy on TV. That was such a groundbreaking series. You got to give credit to George Slaughter. Uh, they had uh, it, it started all the, these magazine shows, and I, I think I'm correct. They they showed uh, outtakes from old movie uh, um, uh, auditions, you know, screen movie uh, people that put it up on the screen to audition. What's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the networks the, they would have an actor come in and do a screen test, mm-hmm. and. Um, I did the first six weeks. The first season was six weeks. And I had a lot of fun. But my wife, um, she said, I don't want you on that show. Because we ended up every show with a a poem. Now it's time to say goodnight. We hope we've done it. And she said, I, I, she wanted me to carry over kind of the unusualness of Fernwood, which was kind of very unique. And I had a lot of fans. So I didn't do uh, real people for the next couple of years. Um, financially, it was a mistake. There was a lot of money I was turning down. And it was an easy job. You, you, they'd send you out on trips, and you'd come back, and we'd rehearse a half a day, I think, on Wednesday, and then do the show on Thursday, a day and a half. And uh, it was a good show. And uh, I think George Schlutter always kind of resented me for, for leaving. But I went back to him one year, and... Um, I called, I read a story about a baseball player. I don't know if you've heard of him. He played for the St. Louis Browns during the war. He had one arm, oh, yeah, yeah. Pete Gray. And I said, George, I just read about this guy, Pete Gray. He has one arm. He plays golf. He plays pool. I'd love to do this story about him. So George tried to set it up, but he said, the guy's uh, uh, tough. He doesn't want to do it. He, he's going to make a movie about his life. He's a pain in the ass. I was almost ready to say, look, I'll, I'll pay him myself to let me come to meet him. Mm-hmm. I'd seen him play, and I was just a kid, and I, I was so excited to see a one-armed baseball player. The Cleveland Indians, uh, or not the Cleveland Indians. It was a time when Bill Veck ran the Cleveland Indians, and he had uh, comics on the field, and the guy who drove a Jeep around the field. I remember he had the uh, little person, too. That was St. Louis Browns. Right. The Bill, well, Bill Veck, yeah, yeah, the Browns. Um so then he talked me into doing uh, 11 more shows one year. And then the next year I decided the money is so good, I'll sign up for another year. And he wanted me to sign for three years. And I told my agent, I said, Let, let's just I just want to do one year. And he just dropped the negotiations. But George is the kind of guy who would fire everybody, but you still love him. And to this day, if I ever am someplace, he'll come up and grab me. And um, So I didn't do any more real people's. Uh, what was, oh yeah, so but Fernwood was really uh, first. I really got noticed, uh, and I that uh, was a very groundbreaking show. I don't think there'd ever been a show like that, and there've been a lot since then that have tried to imitate it. But they make they seem to make sure that um, you know it's a joke. We didn't. We tried to make it as real as we could. Right, the subtlety of it, yeah. the slyness. Yeah, yeah. And Alan Thick was the one of the producers there which a lot of people don't know. And he kept it kind of grounded, and Martin Mull kept it grounded. We'd have people on from the gong show, and they Martin would get very annoyed. He said, I don't want people, these people from the gong show. This should be real people who live in Fernwood, Ohio. Now, we would use some of the people, mm-hmm. uh, but I loved it. We did two, two seasons of it. Uh, we could have done more, but... Uh, um, Norman Lear left, and I think Alan Horn took over, and he said, no, it's not making enough money. We'll, we'll cancel it and do another show. So that was that. When did you first uh, meet Christopher Guest? Uh, in 1969, I think I met him. Didn't actually meet him. I was in um, Jewel Pfeiffer's off-Broadway show called... Um, Little Murders, directed by Alan Arkin. And while we were running it, we were quite successful. We're down at the Circle in the Square. They formed a second company that was going to take over for us, you know. And Christopher Guest was in that company, so I was aware of him. 
And his mother was a very uh, influential casting person in in Los Angeles. I remember going to audition for her or meet with her at CBS uh, on Beverly and Fairfax. So I didn't really know him, uh, but I was aware of him. And um, I think he called me to be in some pilot, or Rob Reiner called me to be in some pilot that... uh, Christopher Guest and Catherine O'Hare were going to do. I'm a little hazy on it. We did a pilot called American... I forget what. The plot was that this out-of-luck couple won a a million-dollar something, and they put their money to buy... They traded in their trailer, park trailer, to buy a double-wide trailer and park it in Beverly Hills. And it was a lot of fun, and uh, it didn't sell. Uh, Then um, I got called to do... um, Wait, everything's going out of my mind. Uh, 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 Spinal Tap? Spinal Tap. That was... um, uh, That was Christopher... uh, Again, why am I... Uh, well, it's Christopher Guest, but it was Rob Reiner. Was the Rob director. Reiner was the director, yeah. Uh, and I didn't want to be in that at first because I was going to play an Air Force officer dealing with this uh, heavy metal band. I said, I'm going to be made to fool- look foolish. And they said, well, he'd like you to come out and just take a look at what they've done. And this yeah, finally went out. And they were out to lunch, and they, the secretary says, uh, Rob, would just like you to watch the like a 10-minute tape they did and I watched it and I said I can't believe this was an improv improvisation it was wonderful and he and Harry Shearer came back from lunch I said I want to be in your movie and they said well we got to talk to your agent about you know and I said no 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 just I'm in the movie uh, and it was just wonderful and that's the first uh, and working with those people uh, the improvisation came easy because it was very you weren't really trying to top each other. It was just a comic situation. And you played to it. And then um, after that, Chris Guest took over and started doing his movies. And I was one of the first ones he asked to be in it. So I was very flattered. And In fact, Waiting for Guffman, he, he, I, was, I think I was the first one he, he hired. And he said, I think we're going to get Catherine O'Hara. But she said yes, and now she's saying no. And she's kind of a pain in the neck that way. Mm-hmm. From what I understand, but she finally did it, and it was wonderful. She, he got all these wonderful people: Eugene Levy, Bob Balaban, really top people, and Christopher Guest. So I fell into it, and I said, "It's, it's a different than improvising on the stage. Going out, let's get a, you know, give us an opening line, and a closing line, and let's really do great. This is just the whole movie. You just improvise. What if something is funny? It's funny, and it's." No, it's not. Now, that's very much like, um, from what I'm reading about early, the Compass players in Chicago, Paul Sills, you didn't go for a joke. Uh, He came and directed our company once for about a month or two. He'd have us do a scene. He told us what the opening was and what the closing line was. And it was something about me and Robert Klein were talking, we old friends we met. He says, you want to end up going to get your hair cut. So we talked, we were humorous for a few minutes, and I said, I think I'm going to stop in this barber shop and get a haircut. He said, wait a minute, stop, cut. You can't just say I'm going to get a haircut. This has to be generic. So we had to, it, it, it took 10 or 12 minutes how we ended up getting a haircut. So that was like Christopher Guest's movie. It was a plot. It wasn't the best of improv. Let's get Robin Williams and all these guys. So there's different kinds of improv, but um, I'm still scared of it. Really? Oh, yeah. It doesn't show. Oh, well, yeah, it, it can... You look great when you can think of things, when, but, but when you, you dry up, it gets kind of uh, embarrassing. What, what kind of uh, direction or guidance did Christopher Guest give you for Best in Show? Best in Show? Um, nothing at all. Uh, we got there, and... We got in the arena, 
And he told us the day before we'd seen the footage of the dogs. The dogs weren't there. Okay. That helps a lot. Yeah. You're not doing it live. Yeah. Um, and I, he said, the less you know about dogs, the better. But I decided I got to know a lot about dogs to look dumb about it. And I was the color man. So Jim Piddick, the, the color man, was sitting there next to me. And uh, we were looking down on nothing except the cameras. And I said, uh, they're going to cut out so much of my lines because they cut out a lot on Waiting for Guffman. I pulled out every joke I could think of. And uh, I, I got no directions at all from him on that. The only directions I ever got from Chris is he'd, he'd cut and come up and correct me with something I'd said that didn't fit in the film. He'd say, don't say that, that's not true, and so let's do that again. But he would come up and he'd, he'd come up, I mean, come up and he said, okay, let's run this, uh, you want to do it again? And I said, well, Chris, do you want me to do the same jokes or, or think of new jokes? Uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. So he was not a really hands-on director. All right, let's try this scene again. Mm -hmm. And we'd, we'd do it a couple of times and it just move on. And the first time that changed was um, For Your Consideration. I don't know if you ever saw that. I did. We did a scene where Jane Lynch and I were interviewing the cast of the movie. And we did our jokes and we did our jokes. And he says... Uh, Okay, we're going to break for lunch, and then we're going to turn the cameras around. And I said, turn the cameras around? I thought we were done, but he was, he was making it more like a movie. I think he moved in for close-ups, and uh, and I wish he'd do more stuff now. I don't know what uh, what he's up to. I, I don't socialize with him. I wish I did, because uh, I love Christopher. You you mentioned that for Best in Show you you wanted to know as much about dogs. What did you do to learn to bone up on dogs? I looked up dogs, what they were. What I I know nothing about dogs. What a uh, you know a basset hound does. What a hunting dog. Uh, what they're for. So I would form jokes in my mind. Uh, came up with a joke about putting a, a Sherlock Holmes hat on a dog and and a pipe in his mouth. Uh, so I knew what the dogs, just enough to know that I'm dumb and misunderstood things. And people ask me, do you know who Jim Piddick was? That was the name of the guy who was the, the, the announcer. Uh, he knew nothing about dogs either, but he'd flown over from London to, to do this. And they delayed our shooting a couple of days and he was in a bad mood that day. Yeah, because he he'd called me in my room and he said, I damn well have to be back in London. I'm doing a series. Uh, they want us to not shoot tomorrow. The next day I said, oh, I don't know. So he was a little testy, which, which, which played well for the scene. He was very long-suffering with me. In fact, I repeated one line twice and a second ta take, and he said, uh, yes, you said that last time, which worked great. He meant the last take. But it, it would meant that he'd been I'd been his co-host the year before, which made it very funny. And he, I'd probably said it the year before. <laughs> does it, what does it mean to you that all of these years later, like your your role specifically in that movie seems to have influenced all future dog show telecasts? I, I don't know. They they wanted me to be the the, the color man in the. Um, the dog show. I, mean, I just, I just found it hard. You know, they they would want me to be myself, commenting on the dogs. And I said, I realized why I didn't want to do it. I was playing a very definite character in the movie, so I could be a complete jackass. But as Fred Willard, it, it was a, be a little different. Um, that's a long message error. It's usually. If you're putting in doors and windows, we we're in the neighborhood. <laughs> this movie, this show I'm doing for uh, Netflix, I, they did the first season, Steve Carell, Space Force. As far as improvisation goes, I had like three or four lines in the very first episode. And it's funny. We drove to the set and there were so many, such a big crew. <laughs> it was just me and my uh caretaker and Steve Carell was there he was going to do his phone version 
I said, how many uh, crew members do they need? There were crew members. Oh, of course, it was the first episode. But I did a couple of lines, and then the director, written lines, and the director came up. He said, okay, how about you and Steve just uh, improvising? I thought, oh, God. He said, okay, Steve, call you. Let's do the scene again. And for some reason, something funny popped into my head, which they thought was hilariously funny because I'm supposed to be kind of out of it. I was on a cane, and I've lost a little bit of myself. And I said, I crawled under the house yesterday to... uh, and he says, Dad, I don't want you crawling under the house. Well, if I didn't do it, who's going to do it? There was a water leak. So it, when it comes, pops into your mind, it's great. So they had me back. I did four, four different episodes. But I did a couple. I did one. I had some things planned. And I did it. Got big laughs. They said, okay, now try it with this. And I did a second one with big laughs. And they said, now do it like you think your, your um, caretaker is poisoning you with, and suddenly I felt I didn't have anything for it. I kind of made up some things, but then, you know, I just felt stupid, which is why I hate to go to an improvisational show. If they're very good, you get jealous. You say, damn it, they must have planned this. And if they're not very good, you sweat for them. I think the the, the only other time besides now that I've seen you live in person was at an improv show at the UCB Theater. It was about 10 years ago. And you were the guest, oh. I think, doing monologues and then okay. improvising. Yeah, on yeah on in on Franklin in Hollywood. Yes, 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 yes. That very crowded theater. Yeah, it was probably ten years ago. That was fun. That was so much fun. Those kids, there were about seven of them lived in an old house off of Hollywood Boulevard. They'd go to the house. I said, "This would make a great movie or a sitcom." They lived in the house. They'd come down and sit around the dining room table and come up with sketches. And we did the show, I think it was at midnight or something. And I had so much fun. I didn't remember improvising. I probably did. Because there were audience, there were so many people in the crowd, they were actually sitting on the stage. Yeah, right. yeah, I did that a couple of times. And then one time, Peter Murrieta, if you know who he is, he's an actor and he writes for, uh, he's a writer, he's an ex-Second City guy. And some... Someone else, they invited, they invited me to that theater. Oh, excuse me. It's the fruit drink. It's going to kill me. Uh, he said, come on, we'll do this show. It's just 45 minutes. I said, okay. We got there, and five minutes before showtime, he showed up. I said, now what are we going to do on the stage? What do you have planned? He said, nothing. I said, what do you mean, nothing? He said, well, we're just going to go out and talk to the audience. I said, oh, my God. But we went out, and it went very well, because you get going, and, and you just... Uh, you just it, it it depends on the audience it depends who you're working with if you have a little private joke between the people you know uh it can go very well what else have you learned over the years about what works and what doesn't work when when working with other people as as your scene partners you don't often get to choose your scene partner you're put you try to, to to make it a realistic, you suddenly really quickly create a whole life and backstory for yourself and what you're doing and where they put you and just hope it goes well. And if you see they suddenly take off on a great trail, you know, you try to string along with them and play to their strength. Or if they're kind of floundering, you kind of pick it up and lead. Uh, that's, I never thought of it, but that's kind of what you do. You know... Go, looking at your impressively long and consistent resume body of work, um, just now talking to you, I realized that those earlier shows, Fernwood and Real People, mm-hmm. those are some of your longer tenured gigs. Usually, you're usually you come on as like a hired a hired gun for a few episodes or one season. Yeah, you never see you. You never do a show more than one year. Well, I've been on shows that are canceled after a year, um, but lately I, I'm called in for one episode, and the last series I did was uh, Back to You with Kelsey Grammer. Okay. Uh, I love that show. That was so funny. The writing was so good. It was Steve Levitan and Christopher Lloyd who did who are doing um, Modern Family now. The writing was so wonderful. I, I still quote lines from it. But it, the the actor the writer strike hit us in about two thirds of the way through, uh, 
we didn't get an audience. The critics were complaining, oh, it's a three-camera show, they're out of style. And I felt there was kind of a backlash of, of Kelsey. Everyone loved him on Frasier. Suddenly he's doing another part. No, he's worked past that. He's does so many other things. And I, I've read reviews from critics saying, we were a little hard on Back to You. It was actually quite a good show. Um, there's one run, I remember that the girl who's a newscaster, she couldn't pronounce the word Monongahela. Ah. There was a news thing that happened on the Mono- at Monongahela. the Monongahela River. Yeah. And I was trying to coach her that it's a Monongahela. She, she just couldn't get it. So then they had a group of teenagers come in, you know, to meet and greet. And, and she's, she heard something about there was an incident at the Monongahela River. I've got to make a call. I have a friend who lives near the Monongahela River. In fact, she lives on Monongahela Boulevard. And meanwhile, the, the co-host was just getting madder and madder because this teenager could... I said, that was such a brilliant piece of writing. Um, and they said, well, we auditioned the girl. We want to make sure she could say, pronunciate uh, Monongahela. But I love them so much. And then they, they used me quite... Not quite a bit, not as not much as they should have on uh, Modern Family. If they think of me, they oh, let's get Fred in. I'd do two, two shows one season, then it'd be a year before i do another one. Um, Real People, I came, I did one six-episode season and then 11 shows the next season. Um, what else have I done? I did a show called uh, Maybe It's Me. Everybody loves Raymond. You're on. Oh, everybody f- loves Raymond. I was for- on that for several years. Yeah, that's 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 right. And it's interesting how I got on that. Andy Kindler was a friend of mine, and he was getting married down in La Jolla, and he invited me down, my wife and me down to La Jolla. So we went down, and he, there are other stand-up comics there. And I was joking, and one of them said something about I don't know. We're staying at this expensive hotel. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. Just joking. I said, well, there's a comedy store right down the street. You could get a, you know, a, a gig and probably pay for it. And he laughed. He says, you don't know who I am, do you? I said, no. He said, I'm Phil Rosenthal. I produce Everybody Loves Raymond. I said, oh, I'm a big fan, which I'm not. We never watched the show. He said, what could I do to get you on our show? I said, well, just call my agent. So that that happened, and I came on, and I, I did the show, and I, they treated me very well. I, I uh, did very well on there and did a lot of shows with Chris Elliott. Chris Elliott played my son. He was, uh, and I'm such a fan of his. And, and they just treated me wonderfully. So that was, and there was no improvisation on that. Um, and I'm still friendly with with. Phil Rosenthal has one of these Sunday night movie things at his house. Okay. It's very prestigious to be invited. He's got his home theater. Uh, and about once a month or so, he'll invite me. And my daughter and I will go down. There's a screening, and he serves pizza because he owns several restaurants. He's a very nice guy. All right, he has that food show, too. Oh, which is wonderful. Yeah. It's a wonderful show, and he travels all over the world. And it's sad to see, like he was in Vietnam, and we fought in Vietnam, and we destroyed the country, and you see the people are so nice and so friendly, and I said, what what were these wars all about? And he goes to Vietnamese restaurants, and everyone, hi, how are you? And Yeah, he's, I, I like to consider him a pretty good friend. What else have I been on that, I did uh, several seasons shows I've been on that, Sister, sister. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, that was from the. Uh, I forget what else. But I like wait. What, what was the last movie you saw over at Phil's house? Oh, the last. Remember the last screening you went to over there? It was a couple of months ago. Mm. I really don't remember. That's okay. I don't remember. But when you when you like you say you you got together recently with Bob Newhart and you well, keep up uh, with people. Yeah, I'm a friend of Peter Marshall. Okay. And Peter called and he said uh, I'd like to take you out. I'm a, my friend Bob Newhart and Ginny. I said, Oh, I know Bob. I was on his series. I'd love to. So we went to this very Frank, Frank Sinatra type restaurant in Beverly Hills, and it was very nice. Bob is such a wonderful guy. 
I was on his episode of the Bob Newhart show. He had me come in when he did a CD of his show to do the narration for the CD. And I remember he's a very easy guy. He's from the Midwest. And he had a terrible cold that day. And we were watching the CD. And I said, Bob, you're not going to remember doing this today. He was so sick. Then he got the Mark Twain Award in Washington. And of all things, he invited me and my wife to come to Washington to be part of it. We went with the Smothers Brothers, and I forget who else. And he, he's such a wonderful guy, and, and uh, he was very easy to sit and talk to. I quoted some of his lines back to him, and he he loved that. So uh, what was your point? Uh, well, my, my question was, does a comedian, does a comedic actor ever really retire? No. It doesn't seem that way. You know, um... Uh, you know, most people when they hit eighty and they've they've worked for so many years, they would kick back in their house in the valley and just actor, uh, play golf or watch TV yeah, yeah. or. I never hear of that. I hear of them not doing it anymore, and then the next thing you know, they're on um, 007 Bond. Well, we spent two months in Turkey. I said, "Oh my God, uh, who's the English actor with the glasses, blonde hair, and uh, he's older guy?" He supposedly retired several years ago, but he he's still doing an awful lot of stuff. John Cleese? No. no. <laughs> we just watched an episode last night of uh, Monty Python. Um, that influenced comedy, too. Um, they were so wonderful. Terry Jones just passed yeah, away. Graham Chapman, I lived in Brentwood, and someone was at our house one day and said, I'm going over... Graham Chapman lives just a couple of blocks away. I've got to go over. Would you like to come with me and meet him? And I said, no, I'd I, I feel intimidated. And I just kicked myself that I, I wouldn't go. I spent a couple hours at a party talking to Eric Idle. And it was a wonderful. I, I think he, he and John Cleese were the two of my favorites of that. But anyway... I like to think they knew who we we were. Oh, I was in a group called the Ace Trucking Company. How do we go so long without mentioning Ace Trucking Company? Yeah, I forget you mentioned that I ever done. Well, I did that after I did uh, Little Murders, the play. That was they call us an improv group. We weren't really. We wrote sketches. We do. We'd come out and do twenty five thirty minutes of sketches, then take suggestions from the audience. We found the best suggestions we got were pet peeves. And everyone had a pet peeve, and we'd act out the pet peeve, then out with a pre-written sketch. And it was so much fun. There were five of us, and the other guys made me laugh so much. So that was a whole different kind of improv, though. The point is get on stage and say something funny, quick, because you were playing to a college crowd or uh, you, you wanted to get your quick laughs. Right, no uh, going 10 minutes without a laugh. No, 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 no. They, so there's different kinds of improv. So um, I felt confident there because there were four other guys in the group, and if you bombed, you didn't care. Someone else would pick you up. And uh, trying to think of the actor. I remember about eight or nine years ago, he said he's, he's, uh, he's going to retire. I don't want to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning anymore, but he's done so much since then. So is that your philosophy? Even today is you're retired, but you're never really retired. No, no. When they called me, um, my agent called one night I was sitting here, and he said, uh, what are you doing Friday? I said, I don't know, nothing much. Why? He said, uh, would you like to work there doing this movie, uh, this TV show for Netflix called uh, Space Force? He said, it's just a couple hours, a couple of lines. I said, oh, okay. I said, how much? He quoted a big amount of money. I said, oh. Yeah, I'll be there. He said, there's just a couple of lines, but I, he didn't say, then you'll improvise with Steve Carell. I probably would have said, oh, well, I would have done it anyway. Then Modern Family, they had me back on the episode they killed me off. They knew I had trouble. I'm having a little trouble with my legs, and I got a little tremor that comes and goes. So they knew that. They said, we'll, we'll give you scenes where you're sitting down. So I, I did one, one day, reasonable hours. The next two days later... My call was 7 a.m., and I said, oh, God. It's been a long time since I had to be on a set at 7 in the morning. So uh, They don't do that uh, to you uh, at Jimmy Kimmel? They don't make you get up early in the morning? Oh, no, it's wonderful. The bad thing about Jimmy Kimmel, 
they'll call at 11 in the morning and say, are you available this afternoon? So far, I've been available. You go into 3 o'clock. You put on your wardrobe. They show you the script. You go upstairs. You rehearse it two or three times. And then you have about an hour to wait till the show at 5 o'clock. And uh, you do it during Jimmy's monologue. He'll stop. And I got we're we're talking to the uh, head of the uh, Iowa caucus. Um, And you do it. It's a two-minute sketch, and you're done. But it still seems like a lot of work, which it is. You're on live. I mean, it's not, let's do a couple of takes of this. And that's that's the same day you were just waking up here in your house? Just waking up, I had plans. Let's say, I'm going to do this and that. Oh, I don't want, okay, uh, do they come and get you? They would, but my daughter loves to go. She'll okay. she'll drive me, and it's, you know, we don't have to leave at two thirty and you get there at three o'clock. And she she loves it. Um, we sit in the dressing room and, and um, we had just watched the Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. And we both loved Rami Malek. We got to the studio and Rami Malek was a guest. And I said to our the woman who handles the we were in the dressing room, I said, I have never done this. Is there any way we could go over and just say hello to Rami Malek? She says, I'll check. And about 20 minutes after we were done, she says, come on over. And he was so charming. He, I walked in, he said, oh, I'm such a fan to me. And we stayed about a minute. Uh, we, we just, and when he won the Academy Award, my daughter says, he can thank you because we voted for him. <laughs> But the other episode, uh, the last episode I was on, um, Al Franken was on. And they came in my dressing room and said, Al Franken wants to come in and say hello to you. I said, oh, sure, sure, bring him in. So that was, that, that was nice. Uh, what was my point? I think, well, I think the point was that you could just be sitting here and then you get a phone call and phone you call. go to work and then you come back. And yeah. In fact, the last one I did was they moved it. They didn't do it at five. We did it. At seven, so we had to be there at five, and they, he did it not not quite at the end of uh, the Trump's not Trump's State of the Union, but he he wanted to watch the first hour, and his writers are, are terrific; they can come up. Um, well, I thank you for for letting me come to your house and. Oh, and well, regale me with all these stories. Well, a lot of times I don't want to do these things. I've talked so much about my background. But Chicago, I, I, I just have very fond feelings about Chicago. I've worked there many times. I've seen a lot of shows there. And there's a whole Second City fraternity that lives out here. We know each other. And I have a lot of friends. So they say, how did you meet him? I say, oh, we're Second City alumni. Because I was back for the 25th reunion and I think the 40th or something. And I have a picture in my den about in my office. The 25th reunion, there are about 25 of us there. And the 40th reunion, you can't see them. They're packed into the theater. But a lot of wonderful people have come out of there. And if you ever talk to someone, say, I spent a year at Second City. I say, oh, when were you there? Well, I was there and so and so. Well... I saw that show. And they said, well, I wasn't in the main company. I was, in, and then they say, "Oh, but that's great." So it's very prestigious. I, I now to get into the main company, you have to go and start at a lower level. And lower, I, I, I don't know if I would have made it or not. But to me, there was that big audition in New York at William Morris. They asked me to come, and I said, "Well, I got other things I'm into right now. <laughs> I've turned down more things." And they said. Um, well, we'll hold a position open for you for a week. So I called a friend of mine in Chicago. Are you familiar with Chicago much? Uh, There's a, a store called Barbara's Bookstore. Okay. This was Barbara of Barbara's Bookstore. Very young lady, very hip. I said, is Second City still hot? And she's, oh, yeah. So I very reluctantly, I was living in New York, and I, did, I wanted to be on Broadway or off Broadway. Very reluctantly left New York for six months. And at the end of six months, they talked. They wanted me to re-up for another six months. And I said, well, uh, and I'd had friends there, and I was really having a good time. I said, okay. So I said to the director, who was Sheldon Patinkin, I'm throwing a lot of names at you. No, he was a long time. Yeah. This, my company was the first company he directed. And I okay. love Sheldon. 
So we were getting paid $150 a week back then, which is fine. Um, now they've got unions and health care. And um, I said, should I ask for a raise? He said, no. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm very fun, so I spent one good solid year there. And when you go back to Second City now, you're given royal treatment. Come on. Who are you with? Come on, we'll sit you right in the front row there. and uh, Drinks over here. Drinks over here. Um, and you and you still get to work with Second City alums like Steve Carell. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So when I was there, there there wasn't a big draw for Hollywood for Second City people. It was I think when they they brought John Belushi in from Second City, then Second City became the big place to hire everyone from. And now they have the the back theater called ETC which I just read something interesting where they got the name. And I can't remember now. But that now they'll, they'll go to the back company that does a little more uh, interesting things. And now it's, it's the groundlings out here. So um, would I have any comments about Saturday Night Live? Uh, and that's still the show... A friend of mine, Steve Bluestein, the comic, he says, two things you need on your TV when you watch Saturday Night Live. Fast forward and mute. <laughs> and I said, that's so funny because I never miss Saturday Night Live because it's the show to watch. Mm-hmm. It's the comedy show. But sometimes they'll get into a sketch and the joke's the same joke. I'll fast forward through this. <laughs> but it's still, when you think that they do a show in six days. I hosted it in nineteen seventy. Eight, I think. Devo was a musical group. Okay. And I was not nervous. You're waiting backstage two minutes before showtime, and you suddenly, you block out the fact that the whole country's watching. It's suddenly just this audience here, and you relax and do it. And you get through it. I worked with Lorraine Newman. Right, that was the original cast still. Yeah, except Chevy Chase had left, but he was hanging around. He came up to me in the middle of a sketch when the cameras were off me. He, he kind of goosed me. He said, hey, Fred, how are you? Nice to see you. And he was doing it deliberately to throw me, to be funny. But um, I have great memories of that. So anyway, uh, everyone says I'm an improvisational genius, and I say it still scares me to death. And if it goes well, it's like the, the Walendas. They cross that rope until that one guy fell off the rope. Then it's not so much fun. Well, you're still on the rope now, and I, <laughs> I appreciate you sharing some of your genius yeah, with me. Well, this was all improvised, wasn't it? Yeah, we weren't on a script. no script at all. And if I could think of that actor's name, he's British. He's he's been uh, blonde hair, curly hair, seventy years old. Ma- Michael Caine. Michael Caine. That's they make fun of his is my cocaine. Um, I worked with him on Bewitched, or did the the the, the reading of it. Were you were you the other other Darren? Who were you on Bewitched? You didn't see me. They cut it out. I was Fred, um, the doctor, Doctor Bim Bamboo, mm-hmm. and the actor was something Fox. Okay. They called me. I was pretty pretty popular then after doing. Uh, Best in show and all, and they called me, to, and I said, "Why don't you use uh, what's something Fox, Bernard Fox?" Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, we want you. I said, "Okay." I did a scene that day with Nicole Kidman, which was wonderful. I made her laugh. She said something about uh, see what happens with improv. Uh, well, you could have told me anything with improv. <laughs> that was a joke. It's an old joke. Uh, and, and she laughed. Then another funny thing, at the end of the day, she, they said they came up to me and they said, is it okay if we release Nicole uh, now, because you have a scene with her, but we'll have a stand-in, do her lines. She's up early tomorrow. I said, oh, no, that's fine. She can go. I said, uh, "Could I? where is she? I'd like to say goodnight to her. They said, oh, she's already gone. <laughs> you know, I said, oh, this was just a formality. <laughs> Well, I I will uh, I will release you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Th- thanks for coming over. Thanks for being interested. 
This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.